Welcome, adventurers. If you have not yet listened to episode 7, please do so now. For the rest, Frayne and his companions lost the advantage against Mardukal, but they follow him still in an attempt to defeat his evil against all odds. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Frayne's legs and arms bumped along the rough cobblestone of the abbey courtyard as he stared up into the reddish hue of Cerisa's light. Mardukal, who held the neck of his tattered male shirt with his right hand, was carelessly dragging him behind as if he was no more than a child's doll. Cerisa's light was hypnotic and held Frayne's barely conscious attention as he was pulled through the main gate and out into the open moors beyond. It barely registered, but Mardukal prattled on as they progressed. Never understood the fascination with gods and goddesses. I mean, look at where you are now. Eight of you came, supposedly under the protection of Gorion, and what has become of you? All the feeble lights of your mortal wicks snuffed out in one ill-advised night. Do you truly think your god was more than a match for my significant powers? He paused for a few short breaths, as if Frayne may respond, and then continued on. I will give credit to your mother, Sarkeesian. She was quite... vexing. I do wish I hadn't let my anger get the best of me with her, but she ruined my coat. Almost as if waiting for this statement, a charred sleeve of his coat broke free of the scorched and shredded remains, slid down his arm, covering Frayne's face for a moment before surrendering completely and sloughing to the ground. She is much too damaged now to place under my care, so you will have to suffice. I won't lie and say I was not pleased by the look on her dying face when I informed her of your fate. And other than her, you did seem to be the toughest of your allies. I had expected you to run after seeing Sarkeesian fall, but you fought on, against all hope of winning. There is some iron in you. I suspect you will make a fine pet. After your transformation is complete, we will visit your citadel before we leave to deliver the remains of your companions as an object lesson to your brothers and sisters. Faith is no match for true power. Frayne felt the bumping motion cease. Then his head and shoulders plopped unceremoniously to the dewy ground as Mardukal released him. His vision was filled with the night sky, head unmoving. And then, towering over him, came Mardukal's visage, an ordinary shovel slung over his left shoulder. At the end of their encounter in the abbey, Mardukal had looked in bad shape, skin burned and charred, a significant limp from a savage wound Frayne himself had landed upon his leg. Now as he loomed over Frayne, other than his ruined clothing, you could barely notice he had been in a fight at all. His skin was pink and new. His long blonde hair pulled once again into a neat ponytail. His perfectly straight and white teeth smiled down at him. 
I am sorry for your sleeping conditions for tonight, but we shan't be here much longer. And with that, he stepped out of Frayne's field of vision. His absence was shortly replaced with the sht sound of digging somewhere to his left. As he stared absently into the sky, he pushed out his will with what power he had left. Gryan, it is I, Frayne, your unworthy servant. Please grant me mercy. Away in the distance, a sound almost never heard on these moors. The scream of a mountain lion. Is there anything to eat? Byford asked, as if in surprise to himself. I do believe I have found some hunger. There is some lamb stew I can place over the fire and warm. A fresh loaf of bread I have gotten just today from Ariston, and I believe some fresh churned butter. Irwin responded, and then added, as almost an afterthought, There is also a flag and a veil in the cupboard as well. Byford smiled and settled back down into his bed. I do believe I will take a little bit of everything. One last meal for us to share. One last drink. And then added, Oh, I wish there was some of Magwin's apple pie for dessert. Irwin smiled and pushed himself to his feet and stretched. You are not alone in that. As Irwin began to gather the various items, bowls and mugs, Byford sat up again. Do you remember that time when Nessa was but four and wandered off into the pasture with her cows that one evening? Irwin stopped a moment while carrying the cast iron pot over to the fire, and then nodded. Magwin was terrified. And then, when we saw Nessa, she was out down the hill below the herd. And in her ignorance, she screamed and startled them. And they began to stampede right toward her. A silence as Irwin stood unmoving, Byford continued. I have never seen anyone move so fast as you. I didn't believe it was possible to cover that much ground in that time. You made it to her just before the herd, and shielded her with your body. I could have sworn I saw you knocked to the ground and stepped on, but then the herd passed, and there you knelt, cradling my Nessa. Not a scratch on her, or on you. I barely believe it now that I am telling it. You saved her life. Irwin paused a moment longer, and then said briefly, Fear can make a man do more than it seems he should be able. And then he continued confidently over to the fire and hung the pot to warm. Byford scrunched up his face, staring at Irwin as he hung the pot. He then continued speaking, as if a puzzle was developing where before there had been nothing. And that night when we traveled to Borgen to see the doctor, to see if anything could be done for Magwin. And he had told us. He told us. There was nothing for it. And I left you two in the inn and went to the tavern in the warehouse district. I got blind drunk and picked a fight with those ruffians. There had to have been four of them. A long pause as his face worked, as he grasped at comprehension. You were there. I can see it now. You beat those men back and carried me away. I always thought I'd dreamed that. You said you had found me passed out in the alley. How 
does a sickly poet beat four men and carry me home? You said you found me passed out in the alley. Irwin stared at him for a moment, then bent to scoop a bowl of stew, went to the cupboard to place the bowl on a tray beside a hunk of buttered bread and two mugs of ale. He turned and retraced his steps to Byford's bedside. As he waited for Byford to arrange himself into a position in which to receive the tray, he finally responded. You were passed out, or would have been. Had I not arrived when I did, you may have been dead. Those men did not appear to have taken your insults lightly, and had already beaten you well, you gobbish crat. As Irwin talked, his voice seemed to lighten, the anger making it more youthful somehow. I know you never wanted to continue without Magwin. You have daughters by Gorion. I was not going to let you leave them behind in your self-pity. Irwin placed the tray on Byford's lap, removing one of the mugs for himself. Byford sat unmoving, still staring at Irwin. Irwin? Your voice? Do my dying ears deceive me? It is as if you are but twenty again. Eat your food, Byford, said Irwin as he sat gracefully into the chair. It is time that one necessary secret between us be cleared up at last. Frayne's eyes opened, but he saw nothing. He made as if to sit up, but upon first try, he could not. It felt as if his limbs and even his head were swaddled tightly in a blanket of some sort. The overwhelming scent of earth filled his nostrils. He began to panic. Where was he? And then a voice came to him as a whisper in his mind. Come, child. Cerise is high in the sky. And we have much to do tonight to prepare for our departure. Frayne felt an unnatural surge of strength course through his limbs, his desire to answer the whispered call filling his being. In one powerful motion, Frayne sat up, bending at the waist. Rich earth spilled down from his head and torso to the rough grass around him. It was with great dismay that Frayne's memories struggled to reorder themselves. They dripped in slowly at first, and then as if a floodgate opened, it all rushed back in moments, ending in the horrifying realization that he had been buried. He should be choking. He should be dead. Disorienting, yes, came Bardukal's voice from behind. Faster than Frayne had ever moved before, he stood and spun in one fluid motion, intent on ripping Bardukal to shreds. The rage and anger he felt for his lost companions pulsing through his veins. However, as soon as his vision fell on Bardukal, it was as if his body was grasped by an invisible force. No matter his anger, he could not force his body to take another step closer towards his hated foe. Bardukal sat, unconcerned, in an ornately carved wood chair, a smirk on his pretty face. He was meticulously dressed in a whole new set of fine clothes, topped with a new coat of black silk, with even more gaudy embroidery than the one he had worn the night before. Next to the chair was a small table with a bottle and glass of wine resting on its top. The abbey loomed in the background. As a whole, the image was ridiculous. The way he carried himself 
it would seem he was a lord surrounded by the comforts of his hall, not a single being sitting in a chair in the middle of the moor, nothing but the abbey to be seen for miles. He stood. I am your master now, Frayne, he said in a conversational tone. Your hate for me will dwindle, and in any case you are no more able to harm me than a mouse is able to fly. He began a stately stroll around Frayne's frozen form. I would ask you to put aside your anger for this moment, for tonight is not the end of your life. All that has led to this moment will be remembered as an embarrassing prelude to your real life. Mardukal completed his circuit around Frayne, now standing face to face with him. Which begins tonight. Life eternal. At some unseen signal, Frayne felt his ability to move restored. Do you understand the magnitude of what I am about to bestow upon you? This is a gift. Can you say you have received anything that would even begin to approach this honor from your measly god? As Frayne stood staring at Mardukal, he could already feel his humanity fleeing, his compassion burning away, his lifelong commitment to justice evaporating like water. A single tear escaped his eye, running down his cheek. This sensation reminded him for a moment of who he had been, of all he was about to lose, and his mind pleaded, Orion, please have mercy on me. Do not let me be turned to evil. But the change surged again, the prayer blown away like a leaf in the wind, and soon a singular desire began to fill his every thought. Blood. I need blood. Mardukal's smirk turned into a sickly smile. Ah, I can see the time draws near. You must appreciate how special you are, Frayne. I have not made another in over three hundred years. When the change comes, you will become your own, though I will always know where you are, having my blood in you. You might think to attack me, to make me pay for what your old self would consider sins. But know this. I am over eight hundred years old. I am, and always will be, more powerful than you. Stay with me. I will teach you the many joys your new abilities can afford you. You will soon forget your false god, and without it, belief in good or bad. Instead, you will understand the true balance of power in the world. Weakness and power. As Mordecai talked, he unbuttoned the sleeve on his right arm and began to slowly roll it up as high as his elbow. Come kneel before me, Frayne. Frayne had no choice. He knelt, head bowed. Only now will you begin to comprehend power. Mordecai extended his exposed arm before him. Receive from me this greatest of gifts. Is there any hope left for Frayne? And what secret has Irwin kept from Byford all these years? Stay tuned next week for the surprising conclusion of His Last Night.